Lord, thank you so much for this morning. And Lord, we're already just dwelling in your presence. And we find, God, just the joy, your peace, Lord. And we find that, God, you're moving upon us already. And Lord, we ask that you would speak to us now as we open your word. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come. And, and Lord, give us a word today, Lord. Lift us up, God. I pray for anyone who's discouraged or just going through things, trials, troubles, hardship, Lord, that today, God, that they would find in your word hope, strength, and courage, God, to keep going in you and in your power. So, Lord, I pray you bless this time, bless your word, anoint it with your Holy Spirit, and we ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Well, oxymorons. There are, are those two contrasting words put together, and they mean something. Here's some examples of some oxymoron. Uh, sometimes we say this, that's a definite maybe. Or how about just act naturally. Or this phrase, look at that genuine imitation there, right? Or how about when things are almost exactly or maybe, you know, that's the same difference, right? Those two things opposite, right? Uh, or how about some of you guys say, this is my educated guess. <laughs> or how about, I did that accidentally on purpose. Those are oxymorons. How about these phrases? Why is it good if a vacuum really sucks? In some states... The highway is called the parkway, and so some people ask, why do we park on the driveway and then drive on the parkway? That's a good one. And think about this one now, one more. Doesn't expecting the unexpected make the unexpected expected? Got to think about that one, right? Well, as we continue in our study through the book of 2 Corinthians, we find Paul giving us two words that really don't go together too well. But in God's plan, it does. And so this oxymoron really is one every believer should never forget. And it's when weakness is strength. That's the title of our message, when weakness is strength. We're going to be studying 2 Corinthians chapter 12 from verse 1 through 10 this morning. We finished up our last chapter. Now we, as we move on, we come to this beginning part. And I've broken up this section into three parts, and this is our outline this morning. Number one, seeing heaven. Number two, Satan's thorns. And number three, sufficient grace. So let's begin here. When weakness is strength. Let's find out what that means. Let's begin with number one, seeing heaven. Seeing heaven. Take a look with me here now. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Paul writes here, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. We'll stop right there. Now we begin with Paul writing, It is doubtless not profitable. Now when I first read that, I thought, what, is, what kind of English is that? You know, really. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm not here to gain anything here. It's not profitable for me to continue to boast, for me to boast. And remember, he's been talking about boasting, like to keep talking about what all I have been through. But here Paul says that I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord in verse 1. He's saying, but you know what? I want to share this vision, this revelation that I receive from the Lord. Remember, Paul doesn't like to talk about himself. And so, really, what we see here, Paul reluctantly now shares about something the Lord showed him. Now, as we've been studying these, these, these last four chapters of 2 Corinthians is Paul's defense, right, against the false teachers. I've been telling you guys that. It's against the attacks that uh, these false teachers have been making on his character's credibility, his integrity, of his ministry, of his very apostleship that, no, Paul, they're saying, Paul, you're not a true apostle. So Paul's really been talking about himself, which he doesn't like to do. They accuse him that way of not being a real apostle, that, hey, Paul, you're weak, you're frail, you're not a real spiritual leader here. 
And so remember when Paul writes to boast, he's not being prideful here. He's not doing what the false teacher does, but, but he's doing something he doesn't like to talk about like himself, but he does what he called earlier in our chapter something foolish, like I have to say some things about myself like they do. But as we saw last week, he needs to do that in defense of their attacks. And last time we saw, right in the second half of um, chapter 11, Paul gave that impressive, remember, resume, so to speak. Uh, it wasn't filled with his, his achievements, his degrees, his accomplishments and all that. But Paul listed what? The hardships and sufferings in that unlikely credentials. That I, that's what I titled last week, unlikely credentials. And it was where Paul was saying, yeah, I'm weak, like the false teachers accusing me of. Yeah, I don't dominate the situation like, like Greek leaders do. I don't push my way around. I don't take control of things. Yeah, I operate in weakness. And we saw really our last point last week was God worked through that weakness, which now leads us into this next chapter, which leads us really into Paul's, I, I call it like secret powers of a true apostle and even you and I as believers in Christ. It's when weakness is strength. That's our title. So this is how Paul came to learn that all this, how to live in this way. And it, was through, it started with this vision, that, this revelation that the Lord gave him. So Paul goes on here. Look at verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Verse 3, and I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, God knows. Verse 4, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter now here we see paul the writer actually he is saying here i know a man in christ he writes really in the third person which to understand this a little bit that's the way rabbis would do when they're speaking of oneself is a way for them to like deflect glory off of themselves so Paul writes in the third person, but it's really him writing. And so he mentions here in verse 2 that it was 14 years ago. That's when this happened. And if you date this, like from the writing of this letter, 2 Corinthians, which some people, we, we, we don't know exactly when that is, but some commentators and scholars write it was around 55, 56 A.D. So if it was 14 years ago from the writing of this letter, this puts Paul's experience before he started his ministry, before he went to his missions, missions tri trips. It's after he got saved in Acts 9, and perhaps many believe it was on his way to Tarsus after he had gotten saved and was discipled. Now, some believe it could have been when, uh, you remember when Paul was stoned in the city of Lystra. They didn't like what Paul was saying, the message of Jesus, right? So they, they threw all the stones and rocks at him. And some believe maybe he really did die. We know in the story in Acts that he revived and got up, went back into the city. But some believe, well, maybe this is when he had this vision. This is when this happened. Now, you can study this on your own and always be a good uh, Berean, right? Acts 17, 11. You study the scriptures for yourself. For me... I, I, I seem to tend and lean toward that this vision probably came uh, before he went into ministry, before he went into his missions trips, after he was saved. You know why? To help him persevere through future trials and hardship he's going to go through. Bruce Barton in his commentary said, Most likely, God was strengthening and encouraging him for the extra extraordinary trials and suffering he would have to face in order to preach the good news so that makes sense to me we don't know exactly but it makes sense that all this happened before he really went into his ministry so paul continues in verse two he says this he doesn't know if he was 
in the body or out of the body. That means he doesn't know if, if when he was transported, it was body and soul, or maybe it was just his soul that went up. And he writes, and he says this twice, even in the next verse, only God knows exactly what happened there. Then Paul says that he was caught up. Now that's interesting, because in the Greek here, the word is harpazo, which is the same Greek word used of the rapture, speaking of the rapture, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. So Paul's saying, hey, I was caught up. I was, I was just all of a sudden taken up into where? Paul says here, I was brought up to the third heaven. What's that? Is that, is that what the third eye sees? No, just joking. What's the third heaven? Well, back then you got to understand in ancient times, the first heaven was our blue sky. It was the earth's atmosphere. The second heaven was, was like the starry night sky, what you see, the stars. It was, it was outer space. It was the rest of the universe. But the third heaven is that place where God lives. It's what we call heaven today. It's where believers will spend their eternal life with Jesus. So Paul says, I was caught up to heaven. He was brought into the very presence of God. He was brought into heaven. Paul calls this in verse 4, he was caught up to what? Paradise. And Paul actually uses an old Persian word which refers to this beautiful garden of the wealthy or even royalty that they have. So basically Paul says, you know what? 14 years ago I was brought up to that eternal heaven. I was in paradise. My mind oh, uh, went straight to Kanaka Vaivai, right? You know, let me walk through paradise with you, Lord, right? Take my hand and lead me there. And I thought, here's the Lord. Here, come on, Paul. Whoop! And brought him up to paradise. Well, it was there in heaven, Paul says in verse 4 now, he heard inexpressible words. In other words, there's no words that could describe what he saw, what he heard, what, everything that went on. Some commentators even say perhaps he's talking about the different heavenly language that was spoken there. I thought, oh, it could be that, you know, like, like um, it uh, speaks about in 1 Corinthians 13. But it was unlawful, it says here, for Paul to even say what was said, for God did not give him that permission. So he couldn't even say or describe uh, what, was, what happened when he went there. Paul basically was given this, this personal experience, this personal word, that all this that brought him, and he was seeing heaven at that moment. Wouldn't that be wonderful if we could be caught up, you know? I'm sure Paul's like, why am I going back, you know, kind of thing. Yet, remember, no wonder Paul wrote in Romans 8, 12, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. No wonder he wrote that. Well, let's go on here. Then Paul says this, verse 5. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, verse 6, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Okay, as Paul goes on here in verse 5, he writes that someone who's had this kind of experience of such a one I will boast. In other words, he, he say, I don't mind talking about someone who, 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 who went to heaven, came back. I mean, that's a, that's a great thing that has happened. Yet, Paul's saying, yeah, I was actually the one who had this experience. I, w- I was the one who, who actually do that. But I'd rather not, not boast, but I'd rather, you know what, talk about my infirmities. And you remember that word means weaknesses. And like the last chapter, that's what he rather talked about. Not about all oh, the visions I had, the revelation, and look what the Lord did for me, <clears throat> for me, right? Paul would rather talk about his low points in his life when he cried out to the Lord rather than any high points when the Lord say, gave him this experience and spoke to him. For though he desired 
to boast or talk about what the Lord did. He did not want, and he says, to be a fool here, like the false teachers, boasting of themselves. And we covered a lot of that in our last messages. He didn't want to be like them, lifting themselves up with their vision. So you get an idea, like the false teachers probably had their visions and their revelations from the Lord. And look and listen to what I've talked about. But Paul says here, you know what? But I really did go to heaven, and I do speak the truth. When he, yet, yet, he goes, I did refrain. I'm, I'm telling you the truth. I did see heaven. I was seeing heaven 14 years ago. And, 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 but I refrained. I held my tongue. Why is that? He says at the end of this verse here, lest anyone would think more of me than what they see or hear. The NLT, I think, renders this perfectly. It translates this like this. I don't want anyone to give me credit beyond what they can see in my life or hear in my message. Do you understand what he's saying? The idea really here is Paul is saying, I I did not want to bring up this vision because I did not want my authority as an apostle to be based just on some spiritual experience. And that's how the false teachers were running. He wanted it all to be about Jesus, the message of Jesus, about his life lived before Jesus. It 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 was all about Jesus. It wasn't him. It wasn't this experience. It wasn't how God took him to heaven. It wasn't about gaining position or authority because he had this vision, right? Because a lot of people can say, whoa, 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 you must be spiritual. You must be godly because the Lord gave you this vision. I was thinking about many years ago, I remember when this old evangelist, TV evangelist, claimed he saw this 900-foot Jesus came to him and spoke to him, told him that he's to build this hospital and that God is going to give him the cure for cancer. So he went and, and he, he appealed to everyone on the TV to donate millions of dollars to this project. Even later he came on, and maybe this is more famous, God had told him to raise $8 million for his ministry. Or you know what? He said, God threatened to take me home. You know what I'm saying? That God threatened to kill me and bring me home. I thought, well, go then. No, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. But isn't that crazy? I had this vision, right? So people will look, oh, what was that? What did the Lord say? Paul's like, I'm not doing any of that. But let me tell you, I, I, I'm telling you the truth. I did. But this is not the reason why I'm doing that. Paul's not here trying to sell himself, to sell his ministry, sell his authority, trying to get, manipulate people to look at him using this vision. He's not like these false teachers boasting of their special revelations to validate their authority. That's what he's saying here. John MacArthur wrote, The true measure of a man of God is not his alleged mystical experiences, but his godly life and his faithfulness to the word of God. I thought that was good. That's what it's about. So in his first section, Paul is saying this. Paul kept quiet for 14 years about seeing heaven because his authority and ministry is not based on that. It's about Jesus. That's what he's saying. This is his point. Paul kept quiet for 14 years about seeing heaven. He did. Because his authority and ministry is not based on that. It's about Jesus. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul wrote, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Isn't that what it's about? Isn't that what we should be about? What mattered to Paul was not his achievements, his spiritual experiences, visions, whatever. No matter how real they are, what mattered was the gospel message that would save people. That Jesus Christ would be glorified. That his love would be known. It wasn't about the money. It wasn't about the fame or power or position like the false teachers were using all this. To, to, they held that important because that's what they were gaining. I mean... Anyone could claim to have a vision or word from the Lord, but Paul wanted the truth of the saving message to be the proof 
of his apostleship. That's why the, the word of God was so important. That's why even us, we preach the word more than anything. And I'm not opposed to visions or revelations. Don't get me wrong. And God does miracles. And God does speak to me. And God has spoken to me. But I'm not going to use that yeah, for my own gain. It's one thing to glorify the Lord when you share about those miracles. You share about when the Lord spoke to you. You share about things God has done in your life. But it's another thing, right, to use those things, those experiences, what God told you that you received from the Lord to lift yourself up, to validate you and your actions and attitudes. Paul's like, you know, I didn't even say anything for 14 years. I went to heaven. I saw things. Oh, I can't even, I'm not allowed to talk about. Because you know what? That's not what I'm about. I'm about Jesus. My ministry, I'm an apostle called by God. And it's not, a, not based on that. It's about Jesus. How about you? Do we use those things, those special things that God has given you, spoken to you about, those special experiences, miracles, to, to lift you up or to glorify God? Are you using that for your own gain or excuses maybe even for your flesh to get something you want? I read about a boy named Patrick who really wanted a watch for himself. He kept asking. He kept talking about it. He he was constantly, that's all he talked about. So finally the parents said, no more. You cannot talk about the watch anymore. Well, when it came for uh, his turn to say grace and pray for dinner, the boy said, before I pray, I would like to quote Mark 13, 37. And And Jesus said, and what I say unto you, I say unto you all, watch. It's funny. It's cute. Yeah, little boy doing that. But an adult, a mature believer, using Scripture, using what God has done in your life to lift you up for your own gain, I'll tell you what, it's immature and it's childish. Paul's saying, you know what? I had the most incredible thing, but this most incredible experience I had, I kept quiet about it because I didn't want my life, my ministry, my apostleship to just be based on that. Well, let's go on here to number two now. Satan's thorns. Satan's thorns. When weakness is strength, we're learning, we're, we're, the story's opening up here. We've first we're seeing, number one is seeing heaven, and number two, Satan's thorns. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. We go on here. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. All right, so Paul writes here, lest I would be exalted in my own eyes, basically, like he would lift himself up above measure. That means unless I would have gotten super, super prideful because of this vision, because of this experience he had with God, he was given this thorn. God knew Paul could easily stumble in pride. Why is that? Well, here in the middle of verse 7, he says, because of the abundance of the revelations. Now, it wasn't just this vision or revelation or this, this experience that Paul had. Actually, in Acts, we see like six other visions, six other times that the Lord really spoke and appeared to him. So Paul easily could have lifted himself up or have others glorify him because of his experience. Warren Risby wrote, exciting spiritual experiences, experiences like going to heaven and back have a way of inflating the human ego and pride leads to a multitude of temptations to sin. It's so true, right? Risby goes on and says, had Paul's heart been filled with pride, those next 14 years would have been filled with failure instead of success. I like that. I like that. I like how if God didn't do this in his life, then he would have been walking around all prideful and everything. He'd be like the false teachers, and his ministry wouldn't be as effective as it, it is. Think about this, though, how hard it must have been. I mean, you get a sneak peek of heaven. Would you, able, would you be able to keep quiet about it? 
right? But Paul, he knew his wicked heart. He did not want to open the door to that road, especially as apostle of God. But God was there. God took steps to guard against any bit of pride that might show its ugly head. So Paul says, God allowed here in this verse a thorn in the flesh. Now, this thorn came in. It painfully poked Paul in his life here on earth as he lived in this fleshly human body. The Greek word for thorn here is not some little minor in irritation, you know, like a chiave thorn, you know, in your slipper or something. It's a sharp stake. This was not just some small irritant. What was given actually, interesting, came from, Paul writes here, a messenger of Satan. What's a messenger? It speaks about an angel, a demonic fallen angel, a demonic spirit. This is where it came from. Satan and his demons came to specifically, and Paul writes here, buffet. The word buffet here means to beat or punch with a fist. So basically, Paul was this punching bag for Satan. So the idea really here is that Satan's thorn, as our heading is, was constantly poking Paul and giving him much grief. It was a constant suffering, a constant trouble, constant pain. So the big question is, what is Paul's thorn in the flesh? What is that? What is he talking about? Well, we see here and, and nowhere else in his writings do we find what that is specifically. Paul does not name it here. But many have speculated, many commentators have, and when I was reading, they said it, maybe it was that constant persecution that he was going to. Or some, um, so, uh, someone, I think in the 1800s, was writing, well, maybe it was like sickness, like malaria or something, or maybe he had epilepsy, or some were saying, oh, he had migraines, a migraine headache. Some of you guys, oh, that's me. Yeah, that's my thorn. Some actually write and say it was the false teacher's themselves right because they were constantly dogging Paul they were constantly after Paul went to a church established a church and he left they came in and they would come in with their false teaching wherever Paul went maybe it was them many believe though they believe that it, Paul had this severe eye problem that he couldn't see very well and he struggled in that because like in Galatians 4 15 uh, he had written oh you guys would have plucked out your own eyes for me so something might be going on with his eyes even at the end of Galatians he he writes see what large letters I am writing in my own hand what is it well I think Paul says, uh, didn't you know really specifically tell us because it was all by design you know why because what a thorn is for me might not be that thorn for you I, I think whatever it is, maybe it was eyes, maybe it was this, but we don't see it specifically mentioned here because I think we can uh, relate to this better knowing that, hey, we all have our thorns that have been allowed to go on in our life. We all have our personal thorns that keeps us really from getting prideful. It keeps us really and keeps us mindful of our limitations. And that's the idea. That's the idea here. There's a purpose to our personal thorns. You know, I was thinking about this, how it's not a fun message to say, hey, there's a messenger of Satan, there's a demon, right, giving you a thorn. But think about this, how in the book of Job, Satan had to ask permission from God to buffet Job, right? So Satan's attack did not happen outside of God's will. And, and secondly, see how, see how God said that the evil done to Joseph by his brothers in Genesis 50-20, God turned it around and used it for good. So God in his will will allow these thorns, but there's a purpose in why God allows these thorns. And what is that? Well, at the end of verse 7, Paul says again, lest I be exalted above measure so the first thing really he puts out here is that that hey, 
I, it's given to me, so so keep me from from being prideful and thinking, I get them, I can do it, I'm so great, I get visions, right? It, it helps and not to go there. What's interesting too, in verse seven, Paul writes, "The thorn in the flesh was look given, right, not inflicted." Some commentators say this is actually a gift to help you. Thank you very much for that gift. I can't say that. I can't comprehend that personally. I'm still going, struggling through some of these concepts too. I know it's hard to comprehend, especially when this thorn, this messenger of Satan is so severe, so painful, so troublesome. It's hard for me to fully embrace. But wait, wait till the next part. Just before you give up on all of this, give up in your mind. Yeah, right. Ah, you know, I'm not going to, ah, checking out now. No. Before you give up on this, wait, wait till the next part. But for now, focus in on this. And this is what Paul is saying. Since pride is such a constant temptation, God allowed a constant thorn to keep me humble. That's what Paul is saying. Since pride is such a constant temptation, God allowed a constant thorn to keep me humble. Have you noticed... Um, on the on some of the roads here i mean down when you're going down um to highly miley or some newer roads have you noticed that that if if you on the side or especially in the middle if you drift a little you know and your tires hit the middle middle part all of a sudden go da -da 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 -da, and you go oh, oh oh right you i mean have you noticed on the edges of the road or in the middle the car just starts shaking even your teeth are inside of you until you move off that da -da -da -da, right well, I learned recently that they are called rumble strips. And they're cut into the road. It's designed to keep you in the lane, right, for safety reasons, right? You don't want to cross the double line into oncoming traffic. So if you happen to doze off or if you're, you're not paying attention and you drift, all of a sudden your car's like shaking, wake up, wake up, uh, wake up, right? And it's not a fun thing. But it alerts you to correct your steering well in a similar way that's what these thorns do they keep us from drifting out into being prideful of ourselves prideful of our spiritual experiences prideful of our spiritual maturity they keep us in our lane they keep us there to give god glory they keep you awake to stay humble and know that god has done all this so here's Paul, since pride is such a constant temptation, God allowed a constant thorn to keep him humble. We all have thorns. They need to be there so we don't drift, so we don't go down that road of pride, so we're kept in a place of humbleness. So you guys, rather than fighting against those thorns, let it do what it's designed to do, to kill that pride. Those are the things that are there to keep you humble and always thinking of yourself first. It's so easy for us to do that, right? I was thinking about, I, I saw a post the other day, and what's the first thing you do? Where am I? You know, in the picture, right? Where am I? Yeah, because we're always thinking about ourselves. Actor Tom Selleck of Magnum P.I. fame once said, Whenever I get full of myself, I remember the nice elderly couple who approached me with a camera on the street in Honolulu one day. When I struck a pose for them, the man said, No, no, we want you to take a picture of us. <laughs> I like that one. The thorns are there to kill the pride, keep us humble. Let's move on to number three now, sufficient grace. And this is really the, we're going to spend a little time here, really the, the meat of this here. So we've seen, seen heaven, Satan's thorns, and now sufficient grace, number three. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Okay, so concerning this thing, concerning this thorn in the flesh that, that kept on Paul, that was, was so hard, Paul pleaded, Paul cried out and begged to the Lord, 
three times now to take it away. Paul's suffering was bad from this thorn. So he prayed three times. Think about it. The Apostle Paul for God to help him. Now some might think, well, this is a lack of faith to pray more than once for something. But certainly we know Paul, the Apostle Paul didn't lack faith. Matter of fact, Jesus didn't lack faith also when he prayed three times for his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. But imagine what Paul must have been thinking in all of this. At first, you know what? I'll just bring it to the Lord and pray. But then nothing. So Paul thinks, okay, this is worse than I thought. I must pray again. And then still, nothing. And then what happens? I was thinking, you know what happens to me? Thoughts of like, what is going on here? Lord, what, what are you doing? So he prays again. Now, it wasn't that Paul didn't pray right. I think he did come in faith. I think he prayed again with passion even more. But the third time after he prayed, and maybe when he prayed, it was, I know for me, it's desperation, right? But it brought in a whole uh, dimension of what he was going through. And I say this because someone hinted it had a physical dimension in that it was a thorn in the flesh. It had a mental dimension in that it was a messenger of Satan. It had a spiritual dimension in that it was unanswered prayer. So what happened? Well, look at verse 9. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, first of all, see that God did answer his prayer. Right? Paul writes, and he said to me, Paul shows up. I mean, God shows up. God answers his prayer. God is faithful to the believer's prayer. And, and that is even if, as we see here, the answer is no. The answer is God is not taking away his thorn in his flesh. I mean, God didn't say, okay, Paul. No, he said some different words. Sometimes God answers our prayers with yes, right? Sometimes he answers them with wait. And sometimes God does answer him and says no, like here. But then the Lord says something incredible here. God does have something for Paul. He's like, Paul, I'm not going to take the thorn away, but let me tell you. The Lord says, Paul, for you, my grace is sufficient. The word there means that it's satisfactory. There's plenty enough. There's more than enough for your need. Remember, grace, right, is God's gift of undeserved favor. It's God giving, blessing, loving, working in your life, not because we deserve it, but in spite of us. God just gives. That's grace. So think of what God is saying. Hey, Paul, there's plenty of grace to go around to take care of you and your need. Notice what the Lord is not saying here. The Lord does not say my grace was sufficient. Like, you know what, there's not a lot left anymore, Paul, so that's why I can't take the thorn away. You used it up in all of your failures and sin, and, well, it's run out. Yet, we know, Romans 5.20, the second part says, But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Right? The Lord did not say, my grace will be sufficient. Like, well, it's only reserved for those really, really big things that happen in your life. The really big trials. Things in the future. You can't use it for what you're going. But Lord, it's bad enough. No, just wait. It's going to get worse. Then grace will come. Oh, no, you know, kind of thing. Yet, we know that that's not true. Because Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Anytime, anytime you, you're in need, go to the Lord and you'll find grace. The Lord says here, my grace is what? Is sufficient. There's plenty for today's thorns, tomorrow's troubles, and even more. So, God is promising Paul here, and this is our first point in this section. Whatever the thorns and whenever the need comes, you will never find a shortage of God's grace. Remember that, guys. Whatever the thorns, whenever the need comes, you will never find a shortage of God's grace. C.H. Persian, that great 1800 
uh, preacher in 1800s England was riding home one evening after a long day of doing ministry. He was feeling weary and depressed. Then this verse came into his mind, my grace is sufficient for you. In his mind, he immediately compared himself to a little fish in the Thames River. Apprehensive, lest drinking so many pints of water in a river each day, he might drink the Thames dry. Then Father Tim says to him, drink away, little fish. My stream is sufficient for you. Next, Spurgeon thought of a little mouse in the granaries of Egypt, afraid lest his daily nibbles exhaust the supplies and cause it to starve to death. Then Joseph comes along and says, Cheer up, little mouse. My granaries are sufficient for you. Then he thought of a man climbing some high mountain to reach its lofty summit and dreading lest his breathing there might exhaust all the oxygen in the atmosphere. The Creator booms his voice out of heaven saying, Breathe away, O oh man, fill your lungs. My atmosphere is sufficient for you. I like that. So for you today, guys, whatever the thorns, whenever the need comes, you will never find a shortage of God's grace. Don't ever feel like as a child of God, there's not enough grace for you. Don't ever think as a child of the Father that you're not even worthy of God's help because Christ died for you. And his righteousness is upon you. And you are worthy because he died for you. Grace covers the lack. Grace moves in spite of us not deserving any of this. It's sufficient grace. And then through that sufficient grace, God brings this. The rest of verse 9 says, For my strength is, or uh, the middle part, For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Here it is. This is amazing. Right here in the middle of verse 9, we've come to the peak of all that Paul has been leading us up to from chapter 10. This is the secret of Paul's incredible life. The Lord tells Paul, my strength, the power of God, is made perfect. That means to complete, to fully accomplish, to make an end to. An end to what? Paul's weakness, his inability to deal and conquer this thorn. So God's strength made an end to Paul's weakness from his thorn. Understand this, God did not take away the thorn. Why? Because the fire of the affliction was designed to burn away the pride and self-reliance. And once Paul let go of trying to make it on his own, then God could give him his power. Paul no longer relied on his power, but now solely lean on God's. That's what's happening here. You know, I was thinking, see, most of the time, I go to the Lord and I ask for substitution. I say, Lord, give me health instead of sickness. Give me deliverance instead of pain. Give me a way out of staying in this suffering. And sometimes God does that. But rather than removing the affliction and suffering by substitution, you know what God does? Many times God does a transformation. Through his abundant grace, he makes an end of my weakness. And by transforming my lack of ability, my lack of ability through the empowering of his supernatural ability. And take note, you're not just adding God's strength to yours to get through. No, this grace is is not just so we can endure it, like grinning, okay, I just need to hold on a little longer. But it's strength to powerfully walk through it. That's how God's strength is finally made to work perfectly in your weakness. No wonder then Paul says at the end of verse 9, Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, Paul says, since this is when God's power really works in supernatural ways, Paul would rather boast now, talk about his weaknesses. That's why he's been doing that in this last chapter. He says, I'm okay. I'm okay for my times of affliction. I'm okay about talking about the time of not being in control. I'm okay I'm, uh, of that, which the false teachers accuse of him. I'm, I'm okay of, of talking about when I'm overwhelmed and overpowered. Because you know what? That's when I see the power of Christ. I like how he puts that. This fully at rest. That means to descend and settle down upon. 
That's the times when Paul finds God's full power working in his affliction. So the idea here is Paul fully accepted his thorn to experience God's supernatural power. Philip Brooks wrote once, and I love this quote, it's one of my favorites. He said, do not pray for easy lives, pray to be stronger men. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your task. Then the doing of your work shall be no miracle, but you shall be the miracle. That's exactly the idea here. So our second point here is this. His weakness is not so bad, for that is when Christ's supernatural power is manifested. His weakness is not so bad, for that is when Christ's supernatural power is manifested. He becomes a miracle. He becomes the one with Christ's power in him. It's not so bad, the weaknesses, the thorns, the sufferings, the problems. The only survivor of a shipwreck washed up on a small uninhabited island. He cried out to God to save him every day. And every day he scanned the horizon for help, but nothing came. He eventually managed to build a rough hut and put his few possessions that he had in it. But then one day after hunting for food, he arrived home to find his little hut in flames, the smoke just rolling up into the sky. The worst has happened. He was stung with grief and discouragement. He complained to God for allowing things to get even worse for him. He was at a complete loss and gave up hope. But then early the next morning, a ship came to the island. And rescue him. And, and the castaway asked, how did you know I was here? They replied, we saw your smoke signal. See, the very thing the castaway complained to God about was the very thing that became his deliverance. And that's what thorns do in our lives. That fire affliction come from the thorns, burn down the self-reliance, self-confidence to the ground. But... That's when we can experience God's supernatural power in our lives. Have you been bucking those thorns he allowed? Are you experiencing, and this is what I think about, the incredible resurrection power of Jesus helping you? Philippians 3, Paul talked about that. Is the resurrection power of Jesus working in your life? Maybe it's not. Perhaps it's because you're looking at things all wrong. Thorns are actually good. If you allow them to kill that pride, the self-reliance, and trying to control things, if you allow that, then in God's way of doing things in our lives, thorns are actually good. Our thinking, I think, is backwards. It's so bad, it's so bad, right? I'm not saying it's easy. But don't, don't live the way the world looks at things. So then Paul adds this in verse 10. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirm infirmities and reproaches or needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. Paul says here, therefore, since I experienced God's power in such a supernatural way, then he says, I take pleasure. That means I delight he delights in what? Infirmities, which is his weaknesses. In reproaches, which is bad treatment. NLT puts it as insults. In needs, that means hardships. In persecutions, that's suffering because of his faith, because of being a believer. Paul delights also in distresses, that means troubles or calamities. All that I've suffered for Christ's sake. Whether it's persecutions, whether this thorn that God allowed in his life, Paul was willing to suffer. Paul basically was more than okay to have to go through these troubles and hardships. Now, Paul's not some weird person who liked pain and suffering. It's not that. I think he meant that he was, when he said he was taking pleasure or taking delight, I think he was accepting them in his life. Then as NASB translated it this, this way. I am well content. I like that. 
In other words, it's not that Paul enjoys this, but that he's content, he's okay to go through these things. He accepts whatever God has for him and trusts God with those troubles. Let me say, I understand what Paul is saying, but it's hard for me to say with Paul, I take pleasure, I delight. I'm, I'm beginning to accept these troubles. I'm beginning to, all right, it's, I, I, I don't like, I mean, who likes pain and suffering and trouble in our lives, right? No one does, right? We want the sun shining all the time. We don't want all the rain and storms and hurricanes coming. But for me, I look at it more like, you know what, God, I'm going to try and accept. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and be content that, you know what, I'm going to trust you in this trial. I'm going to try and complain less, and I'm going to try and be more settled more that, okay, we're going to go through this, and I'm not going to try and get out of this. So how can Paul really say all this? What has he found? Well, we come to this last part of verse 10, and Paul writes here now. He writes, for when I am weak, then I am strong. There's that oxymoron. Here's our word for today. It's backwards from our thinking. It's backwards from human thinking. It's backwards from the world. But this is logic, you guys, that you can trust in. This is the secret to his abilities. He's saying when he is weak, truly helpless, without resources, when the thorn brought him to that place of brokenness, broken pride, broken self-dependence, broken over his inability to control things, that is when, and only then, did Paul find that he is strong. That's when he found the power of God working mightily in him. In this place of facing inability, what happens? You have only one other place you can go, right? God. But God has all that power. God has all the strength you'll ever need. Now, in context, remember, the proof of Paul's apostleship lies in the power of God working in his weakness. It's not his credentials. It's not about him, which he could have listed. But the power is the Lord himself. Think about it this way. Brokenness and weak weakness is God's requirement for maximum usefulness. Let me quote Wearsby once more. He said, strength that knows itself to be strength is actually weakness. But weakness that knows itself to be weakness is actually strength. So our last point here is this. Embrace the fact that the best place to experience God's strength the most is the place of weakness. Embrace that fact. Trust in the Lord in that. The best place to experience God's strength the most is in the place of weakness. When I was a small boy, my mother put me through uh, some swimming lessons, and I was scared of the water. When they were asking me to jump in the water, and even with the instructor ready there to catch me, I wouldn't do it. My mom will tell you to this day, I was so embarrassed. I was so ashamed. You were the only one. Okay, thank you, Mom. Thank you so much. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, as a kid, you know that water can't hold you up, right? You'll sink right to the bottom if you try and walk on it. If you panic and you get frantic, it doesn't help. It only makes things worse. But I did learn to swim. In the swim lessons, you know what the first thing they taught us? was to float on your back. Roll over on your back. To not freak out. To, to not do anything on your own. But just, just float on your back and let go and let it float. And from then on, I was able to learn to swim. And now being in the water is as natural as walking on dry land. Well, that's Paul. That's what he learned. That in the ocean of affliction, so to speak, if he struggled on his own, He'd sink. But when he yielded and relaxed in God's strength, he could float on those things by all logic would normally drown him. Paul learned it was the arms of the everlasting God that were holding him up. So as he surrendered to God's power, he could swim through any waves of adversity. Do you panic in your thorns? I mean, some people crumble under the pressure of them, and they give up trying. 
I'm not going in the water no more. Forget it. Yeah. Some get angry and upset. They come bitter and resentful toward others. Some blame others. Some blame the company, blame the situation, never looking at themselves. They're never even looking at what God might be allowing to break their pride. Some, with our thorns, right, we want to escape the pain. We want to escape the suffering, and so you resort to addictive behavior. Some just check out totally. But is that what believers should do? Is that what you should do? Let's be like Paul. Let's have a different reaction. Let, let th these things bring up or bring you to that place of realization of weakness. Let us find the strength of God so that the thorn is no longer a burden, but it becomes a bridge to experience God in a deeper way. Accept the thorns. Accept the truth that you cannot handle these troubles. Acknowledge your weakness and find the strength to withstand all stresses, all pressures, pain, suffering, hardship, all the blows that the messenger of Satan can bring upon you. And you know what you'll find? You'll find a freedom, a transformation, a miracle happening to you, a supernatural power happening. Guys, it's a miracle. It really is. I've been experiencing more and more of that in my life. Remember, God did not remove the Red, ski, Red Sea obstacle, right, for the Israelites. What did he do? He opened the way so they would make it through. That's what God wants to do. Let me say that ultimately God desired to experience more of God in his life. That's what it was. That's why he, and I understand it. That's why he says, I take pleasure. I delight. I'm well content with these problems and troubles. I'm not, I'm maybe only 70% there if I am to be able to honestly say that. But I understand. And what I want is more of an experience with God. I want to know him. I want to get closer to Jesus. And this is what Paul is really saying. I'll close with this. During a time of continual serious illness, Elizabeth Prentice wrote, this, wrote a hymn in 1856. And here's a few lines from this, and I'll close with this. Once earthly joy I crave, sought peace and rest. Now thee alone I seek, give what is best. This all my prayer shall be, more love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. Listen, guys, when we truly live this truth out here, we find it's not about you and your comfort anymore. It's about Jesus. It's not about what you want anymore. It's all about Jesus. It's not about you trying to stay afloat on your own. It's all about Jesus. And it's all about finally coming to the place where you can accept and see when weakness is strength. Let's all stand and we'll pray. Lord God, as we come before you, Lord, we stand in acknowledging and honoring you that you are Lord God of the universe. You are the one by your grace and love and mercy saved us and reached out to us. We are only here because of you, Lord, and we want to stand before you and honor and give you glory. God, we don't want our lives to be about us anymore. We don't want our lives to, to be revolving around what I want, what I desire, or, 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 or how great I am, or what I can do. God, I don't want my life to be about me. But Lord, I want it to be about you. And God, if by your will you have allowed, Lord, the messenger of Satan to come with thorns that I hate and I don't like, troubles and hardship, pain and continuous suffering, Lord, if that is what you allowing and what your will is, Lord, I will still praise you. And we will still stand here to give you honor and glory. And Lord, we will trust 
in you more than what we can see, more than what we can think or feel, but we will trust that you have a great purpose in it all. And as we read here, if it's to kill our pride, then kill it, Lord. Let it be. Let these things, Lord, bring us into a humble brokenness before you where it's not about me no more, but, Lord, it's you. And that we can have more of you. And that we can experience that miracle, the working of your strength and power, a fullness of God living out in us, an overflowing cup of the Holy Spirit. Lord, as we stand, God, we want to be surrendered to you, God, more than anything. Because, Lord, it's not about me no more. It's about you, Jesus. And I want more of you. And if the way to get more of you, to the way to have more of you in my life is through these troubles and trials, I'm here, Lord, no matter how hard, God. Your will is mine. So, Lord, I pray for everyone here this morning that you would strengthen and touch them. Help them, God. to embrace, to accept those thorns, to not run away from them, to not complain, Lord, to not be angry at you, Lord, but to know that in the middle of that, you will come, and I know you will, and you will do a miracle, Lord. Do a miracle, God, more than ever before, in each one of our lives, let us experience you in a greater way than ever before, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you that you are a God, our Lord. Thank you for being here. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all worship the Lord.